Good evening. I am and have been today struck, as I often am, after the third day of practice, how um, you look so much brighter. Um, And I think one of the things that gives us as teachers so much confidence in this process is that we see that you go from very narrow, contracted, a lot more preoccupied to uh, just a a natural uh, widening, um, kind of an opening, where it just seems like you can look in your eyes and see that there's room for more. And... And it just gives us the confidence that there's something in this process uh, that works. And two, that given conditions that are um, safe and protected and harmless, uh, what naturally opens, what naturally unfolds is, uh, is a beauty that each person has, uh, that we are intrinsically beautiful, and you are beautiful. And some, some, somehow that sounds a little, um, I don't know what, sounds funny to my ear. You're beautiful. And just as an aside, and actually not as an aside, this will be part of this evening's discourse it's kind of my pet, uh, my pet recognition is that I have a lot of confidence that the essential you, that bright light, that particularity, that unique expression of life that is, that sits here, not like anybody else, forged by all the Circumstances that, circumstances that have ever occurred uh, has formed each of us. And we are just exactly, and this sounds repetitive, but we are exactly uh, as we are um, meant to be. It's meant to be this way. How do we know this is what's happening? This is what's here. But my confidence is that there is likely a difference between that immediate and direct experience of yourself, that you that I see, that is so beautiful, so essentially you, so enough. We've been using some conversation about that. But that that which sits here, that we gradually recover that which Tuweri pointed to as that somehow that essential part of ourself, that's a deeper part of ourself. That I'm confident that that which sits here is different than the version of you that plays in your mind. 
the part that Tuary says, we make up. We make up stuff. Isn't that what you said? And tonight's talk, hopefully, will um, maybe not tell why we make up stuff, which was your question in a way, why we wander so long confused on what's called in the teaching samsara's vicious cycle, why we are so caught in a, in a kind of flywheel of um, desire, uh, a, a wheel of hoping and waiting and becoming and um, going. what it is that causes us to do that and then live essentially in that imagined version of ourselves that is somehow getting it wrong. That somehow through all the, the misperception and misidentification that James so beautifully talked about the first night, through all that misidentification, the composite view of ourselves that plays in our mind is one of someone who has a problem to solve. That's not quite right. But yet we don't find anything like that in real time. Today, while I was noodling about this talk, and it's, um, it never really did gel into an understanding of what I would actually say, but, but it's, an occupa- it's an occupational blessing and an occupational hazard that that lines just start floating through my mind that I've shared. And, and, you know, that's part of the fun of teaching. And I could really pick up last night. I had this real resonance with Tuary, who I could tell had learned some Dharma and then loved to find readings and things that resonate with her understanding. And then the, the happiness, the delight in being able to share them with you. She said, I want to share this. And it's really, in some ways, the little kid in all of us that's like show and tell. I want to show what I have now, and I want to show, uh, tell you the story behind it. And uh, so, but anyway, today in my mind came this line from a teacher named Sri Nis- Nisargadat Maharaj, who many of us have studied and through, through all kinds of connections, know his teaching very well. And he, very simple line. And I think maybe because I shared it in one of the small groups today. And the line was, nothing can make you happier than you are. He goes on to say, all search for happiness is misery. And leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being aware, conscious. 
So I have a feeling you may understand that a little more after three days. That all of your search has, um, has had along with it, even though it's completely natural that we want to be happy, that's what drives us. But that search for happiness has left us in a state, a pretty perpetual state of what I like to call suspended happiness. Not quite happy yet, but someday I might be. And that's just an idea. So in that line, it says, all search for happiness is misery. It turns out that every moment of mindful attention, the search is called off. We don't know it at first. But what happens even right now when we call off the search? What happens after your last idea of yourself, of needing to get somewhere, become someone, or fix something, or heal something? What happens after the last thought of that has stopped just for a minute and before the next one comes. What do you find? Already, already, always. After the last thought has ceased and before the next one comes, what do we find? Anybody willing to say out loud in the hall? Awareness, okay. A little louder. Present moment. Present, mo- present moment, awareness. Peace? Peace, yeah. Ourselves. Any problems to solve? Anything missing? Anything lacking? So close, so accessible. A beautiful, wonderful uh, Zen teacher named Hakuin Zenji said, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like a child of a a wealthy home wandering uh, in poverty. There's all kinds of metaphors that we could use. But he goes on to say, lost on paths of ignorance, we wander endlessly astray. But then, if you turn about and recognize that you're aware Where are all the confusing paths then? This very land is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Right where, you, right where you're sitting. How sad that people ignore the near. So we begin to 
reclaim this. As Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, reclaiming your heritage. He says, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So this is obviously the good news. And it's really fun to share it. It's really fun to share it. But as the wonderful Tibetan teacher named Dujim Rinpoche says, you know, isn't it true that after the last thought has ceased and before the next thought occurs, is there not a vivid clarity without anything in particular to see, just says, oh, this is awareness. Ho means amazing. Don't you think it's amazing just the fact what Suzuki Roshi calls that ultimate fact that you are aware here? It's so easy to take for granted. But its essence is just open. Doesn't have any kind of limit to it. And it's, uh, and right, it, with its openness, there's, everything is noticed so effortlessly. It's pretty amazing. So easy to ignore and take for granted. Again, in the Tibetan teachings, they, um, they say there's four reasons that we don't recognize what's so um, Precious is already here. Uh, as you're, in a way, your natural state. It says it, the first fault, or they call it the four faults, but it, it's that it's too close. It's too close. It's like trying to see your own face. We just look, <laughs> we're always looking elsewhere. But here we turn the other way. And you start to notice. Then the second part is it's too vast. It doesn't fit into our little conceptual uh, thinking. It doesn't fit in our that little package of what's acceptable and what's okay for our world of concepts, as Tuari was sharing. So too close, too vast, too wondrous. And finally... Too easy. That all we have to do is be aware. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. So I'm getting back to the good news, bad news. So Duju Rinpoche says, this is awareness it's natural, you have it. Uh, it's the Buddha in you, it's Buddha nature, your intuitive awareness, whatever. It goes by many names, remove all the names, and you're still aware. Doesn't matter what the name is. Everything is known in awareness, minus the word. He says, but isn't it also true 
that a thought arises. And if that thought is recognized, uh, it's recognized, it's understood to be just an expression of awareness. That's what awareness, that's what displays itself in awareness. This whole world, both the, what we call the inner world and the outer world, thoughts arise. If it's noticed, not a problem. But if it goes unnoticed, as is often the case, that one thought spreads out into ordinary thinking, getting back to everyday mind. And this he calls the chain of delusion. Because in that little chain of delusion, that little thought world, thought bubble, we are just by habit, by such an innocent habit. And why I'm talking about this is that is to almost beg you to regard uh, your stress that comes from your mind to regard it with so much kindness and mercy and just to bring back in self-compassion. We are just conditioned. It's not personal. It's not, it's not your fault. But in that chain of delusion, we are born into a real profound, and it's, little, it's momentary things, but we're born again and again into a little drama. And, and that drama, that little story of us is born in, a, in our thoughts that we don't find right here when we're present. We don't even need, most of the time, we don't really need that story to notice things. We do sometimes. I need to know that I'm the serving in this function of, of giving the Dharma talk tonight. A few, I've had a few times of where I've walked in the door with the talk under my arm and forgotten that I was the one giving the talk. And that, that, wouldn't, that doesn't really work. But getting back to the identity, the story that plays in our mind is mostly historical. And it's a wonderful story. I, I, I think I have a great story. And I know everyone here has a great story. And I, want to, I would love to hear all of your stories. Uh, how, how life forged you. How it brought you to this moment. That's an amazing thing. Through all the different circumstances. But that story can't really capture this. It can't capture the utter simplicity of your life. Your life situation, your story may be incredibly complicated, detailed, deep, painful, pleasurable. But moment to moment experience, reality is simple. How sad that people ignore the near. How do you get out of a complicated life? 
We don't have a complicated life. We have complicated minds. Our life is really, in its reality, it's just six experiences. You've heard this probably countless times. Our whole life is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. The rest is, a, is a, um, an elaboration. It's a, it's a narrative version of, of you. So in that part of the problem with that chain of delusion, when we don't know it's a story, we don't know that it's just an approximation of reality, a historical version of ourselves. We think of ourselves, we think that the absolute truth of our nature is that we have, and this is not the absolute truth, we think that we have come from the past, we're passing through here on our way to the future, where the problem will be solved. (laughs) Now, what does that do to this immediate life that we're living. There's a few problems with that, that story. And it's a view. The Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti. Ditti means view. And Sakaya is self-view. The view of self in time. Or conceit I am, as James is sharing the other night. few problems with that view. One is um, the future, our source of relief, uh, never arrives because time is only and always now. It's right here. Two, as long as that imagined future holds the key to my relief. I'm also left with a state of uncertainty about whether I'll get there. And do you know what we experience with a repetitive sense of uncertainty? Anxiety, worry, restlessness, agitation, is like a field of hindrances are part of that chain of delusion. Now, the beauty of the practice is that those hindrances become our path when we notice them, when we notice our mind creating, projecting, when we notice the selfing process that is occurring. The way we're building, where the mind is building that house of me. So the future doesn't arrive. The, um, I, maybe the saddest part again is that, that that story of me and happiness. Remember the Buddha was called Sukhiya or the happy one. So it's all about happiness. Our story of happiness in the future, depending on conditions being met, that's a pretty tough task to get everything right. 
so that someday, maybe, I'll be okay. And nothing can make you happier than you are. The Buddha realized this. I'm just, he may have used different language. Of course, he didn't speak English. But he realized this. And what did he do is he spent 45 years pointing people back to this vital point of uh, the Buddha here. But it's instructive, I think, to know uh, what he learned, what he saw that allowed him to call off the search, allow him to not just have a little momentary recognition of the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our nature that's right here, but to actually gain some confidence in it. Stay here. And then enjoy the the fruit of all the conditioning. He was still visited by, by Mara after his awakening. Still visited by the voice that says, it's not here. Be probably better if you did something else. Still brought doubt into his mind, still brought some version of uh, something will make you better or happier than you are. But he was able at least to, with much clearer eyes, to say, I, Mara, I see you. What he did in order to call off the search once and for all. To be a finder instead of a seeker. Which we may not realize we are in every moment that we settle into whatever is presently arising in our experience. There may be a a undercurrent of still what our teacher Joseph Goldstein says, toppling forward into the next moment. Have you noticed how tight our necks get? A lot of that is because our fixation on our obsession with what's next. And how I was talking to one of the small groups a bit about this, how there's such a tendency to neglect our back body you know, a lot of attention in yoga is to wake that up again. Notice what happens when you have a, a more 360 degree sense of awareness around your, your body. Notice how you, I don't know, I feel a little more rooted when I say that. And when, when I'm rooted here, and I get used to it, which I think we're all doing organically, naturally, I'm just less likely to want to be somewhere else. And my mind is just a little bit uh, less thirsty, hungry, craving, less. 
what's left when our mind is not in a state of seeking? What's here? The funny thing is that part of that little story that plays in our mind posits the notion that we all want in that little drama that plays in our mind. We all want peace, but we actually think it's at the end of the rainbow. We think that it's in time. We don't realize that salvation or peace is, um, is not, it's not in time. It's, it's you. Now. How many of you believe me? Cool. How many of you don't believe me? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Everything is okay. Tomorrow. <laughs> oh. So the Buddha wanted to know the secret. But all the messages that he was getting was, you know, our modern version of uh, is shop till you drop is, is that, you know, our consumer machine, you know, it's all about keeping us in a state of greed. And because on the surface are the objects of our desire have our, produce such a pleasant feeling, we don't actually recognize until we practice a little bit with greed in the mind or desire. We don't recognize once we drop into our body that the state of our body is a state of tension when we're wanting something, when we're waiting for something. And I know I learned this from James um, many years ago. He says, you know, he talked about when we wait for the bell to ring. Any of you have that on this retreat? <laughs> so the bell in our little story becomes the secret to happiness. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the bell, the gong finally rings and, and we go, oh, oh, what a relief. And the mistaken view, because we haven't really paid attention, is that it's not, the bell is not what released us from, from that stress. It wasn't the bell that did it. It was the lessening of that desire. It was the fading of that wanting. And so we often don't notice that that state of suspended happiness is, it's just a chronic habit. So the Buddha tried everything, tried feeding the wanting mind in his own practice, his own life. And he, um, he had a chronic experience and he had, he had uh, much like us relative to places in the world. You know, this is a pretty privileged condition that we're in, being able to practice like this in such a beautiful place. Don't take it for granted. And the Buddha was living in circumstances very similar relative to his time. And yet he was still dissatisfied. And, but what turned his, his mind toward a little more 
serious look at where relief was to be found, really found a reliable relief, was when he met those, um, those heavenly messengers of, of someone near his own age who was ill and somebody who was uh, very old and, uh, and a corpse. And then he also saw a renunciate. That helped too. But that struck him in his heart uh, because he knew that he would age, he would get ill, and he would die. And he saw that if he does that, it, he extrapolated that everything that you tend to experience will ha- subject to the same law. So there's really no reliable happiness in changing conditions. So where do you find it? So he studied, as we all know, he studied his body just like this. So studying the Buddha Dharma is to study what we call ourselves, which is his body. That's the strongest identification. But he saw that this body was more intimately, it was constantly, as James was speaking of the other night, constantly changing, marked by not-self. He inspired me. I think I have enough time. He inspired me to bring along tonight my factoid. He was talking about all the circulatory system and the different systems and and this was a little bit of an elaborated version on the, this body that we take to be ourselves. So I thought you would enjoy it. Um, uh, humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. Enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. Take 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. Takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words a day, except when they're on retreat. Every breath, we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. Average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and join the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. This is where it gets a little weird. (laughs) Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds per year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. (laughs) The, the, 
The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head hair every two to five years. Body replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. So in other words, at any given moment, parts of your body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? So examining meditatively and realizing the truth of uh, impermanence and the ungraspability of this body and obvious selflessness of this body, no self to be found in the body. Uh, Something in us relaxes, let's go. Maybe initially panics, but really intuitively we know that we have to live in accord with reality. I think in our heart of hearts, we love truth. Even though lots of avoidance. But the avoidance is um, pretty innocent. So just moving on, the, the Buddha studied everything. Just... Just in general, his, what, said, what it said to be his pride and enchantment with health, with youth, with life, just kind of evaporated. But slowly, slowly in seeing the changing nature of everything that was attended to moment to moment, a few things happened. One is something let go. There was just a natural, intuitive releasing of trying to hold on to something that's changing. But two, in the process of noticing, the attention, the consciousness through which all that was being perceived got brighter and brighter until it was, until he couldn't deny that the that the attention, we'll call it in our conventional language, call it my attention or his attention, but it was really didn't belong to anybody. It was attention. It was shining in its clarity. And with the letting go and a little more clarity, there came to him this um, this wonderful, a surprising sense, of this letting go and clarity, a surprising sense um, of happiness, sometimes called vipassana happiness, which is another way of calling, of naming the happiness of equanimity, of a mind that is aware, fully aware, engaged, interested, in love with truth, but not reacting. As that same teacher, Nisargadat, who I quoted earlier about nothing can make you happier than I, 
He calls this choiceless love the touchstone of awareness. And as he rested in this happiness of equanimity, the intuitive awareness just started working on this, just not by thinking about it, but just in a flash of insight. There was a realization that the reliable refuge that he had been searching for through the endless attempts to find relief in youth, in health, in life, in stuff. That relief he had been searching for in that flash of insight revealed itself as the natural state of his own mind. That's why it's called Buddha, awake. And how he, well, I'll share first what he, he just was, you know, struck by the first, as James shared the other night, he didn't, didn't think anybody would understand it. And he saw that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes who, if they were pointed back to themselves and given some tools to study what it is, maybe not why we leave, but how it is that we find ourselves on that endless wheel of samsara, that if we actually saw how we leave, that we would understand why we leave. But not because we thought about it, but because we see for ourselves the process. But first, before he did that, he let out a song. He said, through many births, in the wandering on, and I think of births, you may take it literally, but I think of it as every time we're born into that little internal drama. That's something I can verify. I can't verify the other lifetimes, but I can see the way I'm born into a little drama of dissatisfaction moment by moment. And that when that little lifetime ends, I, or I notice it, peace is there. And it's pretty open. And it wasn't created. It was just hidden. Where was I? Oh, he let out a song. Said, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. It's the house of self. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. And the way I take this is, you'll build plenty of houses, but I'll see, I see you. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken. That's the um, defilements. You see them. You see the 
the wanting, the aversion. You see all the defilements of mind. Ridgepole destroyed. Ridgepole is ignorance, confusion. You know that that idea of yourself in time is a story. It's not, it's not the real you. It's a secondhand historical version. Beautiful, but can't capture. Doesn't necessarily bring you peace. Your rafters are broken, a ridgepole destroyed, mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings cessation, the fading away of wanting things to be different. My mind has come. Pretty, it's a real lion's roar. It's inspiring. But to bring it very close to what we're doing here. I was saying this to one of the small groups today, that those moments of mindful attention, of feeling our steps, eating our food, it may seem like, it may seem kind of mundane in a way, but it's not so much what's present in that moment of mindfulness, even though it is kind of miraculous to be able to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and know it with clear comprehension. But it's not so much what's present in that moment, it's what's absent. And what, what we're literally conditioning or deconditioning every moment that we plant the seed of mindfulness. What's absent is, are those three poisons that both James and um, Tuwari spoke of. Greed, there's no wanting in the mind in a moment of attention. There's no agenda other than to know. There's no aversion in the mind. There may be a mindfulness of aversion, the residue of hating, not liking. But that moment of mindful attention, it's as though it, it's aerating that stream of distress that we are so caught up in. And that's why we can sit here in this room after three days and I can say, you look so much brighter. And whenever I say that, I hear the words of, of uh, the poet Hafez who says, even though the voice of depression sends its invitations, uh, you're with the friend now. And I think of that as you're, being, you're aware more now. He says, you, can, um, you look so much brighter and you can stay that way and even bloom. It says, keep squeezing drops of the sun uh, on the little movements of your own holy body. It says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. You're with the friend now, and you look so much brighter. You can stay that way and even bloom. So when the Buddha started to teach, in five minutes or less, <laughs> 45 minutes, 45 years... <laughs> condensed into five minutes. 
he pointed to not only to, as he did in the Anatolakana Sutta that James shared the other night about how because of the proximity of our, our observation, because of perception, that's often very superficial, we don't see that what we take to be me and mine is just form and feeling and perception and mental formations and consciousness. Besides that teaching, he described the process, the very innocent process of how we are born into that little internal drama. And it starts with, and that why we highlight these in the four foundations of mindfulness, why we highlight that feeling tone or Vedana, why it's so essential to recognize experiences as and be able to accommodate experiences that are really pleasant, really unpleasant, and those that are somewhere in between, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Because it is that moment, depending on whether there's mindfulness there or depending on our habit, that the seeds of that whole drama are built. Just the simplest way of describing it, there is a moment of, okay, we'll use the, the common example that happens on a retreat. That we, I like to talk about it almost at every retreat, but it's, there's two things that happen. We call, one of them is called the VR, Vipassana Romance where someone in the room, you like something about them that produces in your mind a, a pleasant feeling. When you see them, you see what color socks they're wearing. It could be anything. The way they walk, the, their shoes. But it produces a pleasant feeling. And that feeling, if it goes unnoticed as pleasant feeling it's usually followed by um, a little charge called liking. And if that liking isn't recognized, and this is kind of, it's called the chain of dependent co-arising, one thing leads to another. If this is present without mindfulness, if pleasant is present, it's followed by liking. Liking, not recognized, followed by wanting. Now, meanwhile, we're already two steps along the chain and there's tension building. And that tension has to go somewhere. Where does it go? It goes into planning, courting, <laughs> traveling, marriage, <laughs> divorce. <laughs> it's intense. And in that little dream... That person, whoever you've, your attention has lit upon, has become the secret to your happiness. <laughs> the one you've been waiting for. The one who likes to do things just the way you do. <laughs> Keeps you in your comfortable box. <laughs> Meanwhile, nothing's happened. <laughs> and yet, it's so painful to have that unrequited have that unfulfilled. Nothing has happened. And it's true with every one of our dramas. Nothing has happened. So the, the beauty of practice, we can see that. At any point, you become aware of 
at any point in the cycle, even if you've gotten, if you're bereft with longing, the moment that's recognized with mindful attention, you go, oh, that's longing. And the chain is cut. But if we can learn how to hang a little bit with the pleasantness of the Vedana that comes when we see that person and really feel the pleasure of it with full attention, often that itself cuts the chain and the whole drama, the following drama doesn't necessarily ensue. And the same equally as painful, dramatic and cycle is the, what we call the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where something or someone, I was telling somebody in the group that's usually on day three where the vendettas start toward the neighbor or toward the cooks or toward the teachers. I've had hate mail on the third day. Or, <laughs> but some unpleasant Vedana feeling followed by not liking, followed by... Um, aversion, and then tensions building, and the release of the tension, this compulsion to think and plan my revenge and my... Again, nothing happened, but... But I've gone through a, I've gone through a lifetime of stress within a matter of... Could, you know, one of my VRs on a three-month retreat lasted a few months. And... You know, it's kind of an undercurrent, and it was really painful. And often the fantasy is, once you talk to the person, Anyway, the beauty of the Dharma is that all of this and the only, what, what I found so beautiful, one of the things I found so beautiful about Tuwari's talk the other night is that the pain of these situations call when we meet them with awareness. It just calls forth that those Brahma Viharas calls forth the, the compassion. How our difficulties when brought into our practice, become the cause of our relief. It's unique to human beings that our, that our pain becomes the cause of our happiness. That's why it's just understood that the cure for, as Rumi, the poet Rumi put it, the cure for pain is in the pain. We turn toward it. And increasingly, if we stay here and keep letting those uh, qualities that flow from mindful attention, those Brahma Viharas, the clarity, the wisdom that knows that whatever arises passes away. Really, that's the only difference between Buddhas and ordinary people is Buddhas know that whatever arises passes away. That's from Ajahn Sumedho. He, he highlighted that that very specific difference. And when you know that, something in us relaxes. We stop trying to hold on. And as the, our, one of our lineage teachers um, said, 
Uh, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world uh, will come to an end. That inspires me to read a very simple poem from attributed to the, the nun Damadina, a, a, tra, a traditional Theravada nun. She said, For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills only to find myself floating somehow above, gently upstream. I promise it was not what I expected. I'll read it once more. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sunrise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I expected. So without changing posture, just be aware. Minus the word. May all beings realize this sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now. May all beings grow in equanimity, able to accommodate the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the in-between with less reactivity. May all beings be liberated. Thanks for your kind attention. Enjoy the NPMs. Moment by moment, the transition, steps. And there will be another treat on this retreat during the next uh, sitting. So please continue, continuously. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.